Let's take our Bibles together and turn to Revelation chapter 21. That's our Bible text for this morning, Revelation 21. I'm going to read the whole uh, section, and uh, it's a little bit lengthy, uh, 27 verses, but um, it'll help you if you open your own Bibles. If you don't have one of your own, there's uh, lots in the room here uh, tucked underneath the seat in front of you, at least three per row. Uh, you certainly should be able to get your hands on one. Revelation chapter 21. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height were equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light. The lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, for there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of God. Please join me as we pray in preparation. Father, with this fantastic otherworldly imagery, we know that you gave it to your servant, John. He wrote it down and it's been given to us. It is for us. We know because the beginning of this book said we're blessed to read it aloud and obey it. So God, we want to do that. This is your word to us. We want that blessing that comes from taking this word in. Father, we need you to um, illuminate this to us by your Holy Spirit because, Father, it has been breathed out by your Spirit and it is a supernatural word, so we need supernatural help to understand and apply it. I ask, Father, that you would grant me the grace to proclaim it faithfully and give us all that Readiness of mind and heart, open ears to hear what you have to say. A word that comes to us that is above and beyond the words of a mere man, but the word that comes from you. So God, be glorified in this time. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Things like new cars, new houses, new Close. You know, it wasn't long actually ago, four years ago, that this space was new. Um, something that's new functions like it should, right? It should be pleasing to the eye. But we all know experience tells us that it does not last. We take for granted that new things eventually wear out. That new car. As much as you try to park it away from everyone, somebody will find a way to swing their car door open and ding that car door, and you'll say, well, there it is. I guess it doesn't matter where I park anymore. It happens, right? And this carpet, try as we might to keep it clean, it's going to eventually be completely blotched with coffee stains and tears from dragging the chairs around. That's just the reality. Not, it's not an encouragement to do so. Let's try to keep it as long as possible, but that happens. But worse than that, of course, our bodies wear out. We get diseases. Sometimes relationships fracture. People we dearly love eventually die. If you know your Bible and you know the reason for it, right? It's sin. It's our sin. It's kind of hard to imagine a world where nothing decays where there is no disease, no death, no sadness, where, where nothing breaks fellowship with God and, and with others, nothing at all. But that's what John sees in the passage that we read together. And he hears that declaration in verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, this is a promise, a sure promise for the people of God. It is a promise for those whose lives have been bought and paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. 
or as Revelation describes it, those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's a promise for us. This is our future. So I want us to take these next few moments as we unpack this passage of Scripture. I want us to delight in that picture. This is the substance of our Christian hope. And to do so, we're going to consider this passage under three headings, with three words, place, people, and possession. Place, people, and possession. Well, let's get to it. First of all, the place. And what is that place? It's a restored creation, a restored creation. Some of you may have seen uh, the, the movie Field of Dreams. Well, having been drawn from the cornfield, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'd have to see the movie, but the, drawn from the cornfield into Ray Kinsella's baseball field that he constructed, the young John Kinsella, he's marveling at the beauty of everything and the experience that he's having, and he says to his future son Ray, can I ask you a question? Is this heaven? If you've seen the movie, you know. Ray, kind of looking puzzled, says, it's Iowa. <laughs> now, I don't think John's question, John Kinsella's question in the movie, seems odd in any sense to people who believe in some kind of afterlife. It's not an odd question. Where, where's heaven? This seems great. Is, is that it? But the question before us that I'm thinking through is, and this passage I think points us to, where is heaven? But I think more importantly for the people of God, where is our eternal home? And to that question, John Kinsella touched on something that is true. For the people of God, heaven above is temporary. This world will be our eternal home. It will be restored. Verse 1, we look at our text. John says, Then I saw, it's the next thing he sees in the sequence, not chronologically from what we've seen, but I just take it. This is the next vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Now, it might sound like creation in its totality will be destroyed and replaced. I think it's hyperbolic language, very much in keeping with the intensity of the imagery that John sees. I, I, I take it that John is being shown that creation will be renewed, renovated, that it will be made complete. And to do that, I, I'd have to step back for a moment from the, the apocalyptic symbolism that we find here in Revelation and look at other scriptures. Let me just take you back to the creation story. Genesis 1.10. There, when the Lord created the land and the sea, he said it was good. And after he made man, he saw everything and said, very good, Genesis 1.31. But if you know the story, you know man sinned, right? Now, having determined to save man, God cursed, and this is important, cursed not the man, but creation. Look it up. Cursed creation. He cursed creation because of man, even though the creation had no moral culpability for man's sin. 
So the result of that would be that for man, work would be hard. He would toil. The earth would resist his, his desire to plant crops. Childbirth would be painful. And relationships would be strained. Now, not to personify creation, but it seems to me in the creation story, it's, it's like creation reacted to man's sin. You know, like when your body, you know, when you've got fighting that flu virus or, or any cold, you feel tired, right? You get a fever. Your body is fighting against the virus, trying to eradicate it. Well, in, in the curse, the creation that God called good, don't forget that, reacted, as it were, I take it, against the virus of sin that man introduced. That's what creation was doing. So God didn't wreck our habitation we did. We did by introducing the sin virus. We carry that, and we disturbed creation. And I take it this way. If in the moment that man had sinned, God eliminated the human race, I can imagine creation would have been just fine, thank you very much. That's not what he did. Now, when Christ returns, as we look ahead to, to, the, to the end, which is pictured here in Revelation Christ returns and judges. When the virus of sin is eradicated, creation will breathe a sigh of relief. Now, I take it that that's what's in view in Romans 8. We, we read part of this together. So I want you to listen again to Romans 8, 19 through 23. Listen. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, caused by man, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans. There's a fever. It's fighting the virus that we brought. Now in the judgment, that's the last chapter and the chapter before, in the last judgment, that will ultimately reveal the sons of God. It will reveal those who, that have been redeemed, cleansed, the perfected people of God's own possession. In chapter 20, that scene before the great white throne, that in that scene, sin, death, the grave, the serpent, the beast, the false prophet, and everyone, whose names were not written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain, all that corrupted the creation were cast into the lake of fire. It's purified. Now verse, verse 1 continues, just to, to make continue the point or, or, or just to illustrate in another way. Verse 1 continues, and the sea was no more. Now that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, now, if you love spending time at the ocean like Kathy and I do, 
you might think that the sea being no more in the new creation would be less than ideal, but that's not what's in view here. In Revelation, the sea is symbolic of, of the source, the source, the, the beginning point of destruction and evil. The beast emerges out of the sea, right? In Revelation 30, 30, uh, sorry, 13, 1. The idolatrous merchants made their living by the sea, Revelation 18, 19. The sea is the place of death, back in chapter 20, verse 13. So now the sea is no more, which means that sin is gone, and the source of all that is evil and destructive is gone. In verse 5, he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. I think you know this, ever since Adam and Eve, ever since the fall of mankind, mankind has arrogantly believed that somehow we could make it new ourselves, right? Whether that was Babel, Babylon, Roman, Max Yasker's farm, some of you old enough know what I'm talking about, right? That was in the last century. Every utopian ideal that has ever been conceived of to somehow create an ideal place. And whether this is articulated in biblical language or not, all of these, all of these things have expressed a longing to return to Eden, the ideal, the perfect. I mentioned Max Yasker's farm. Listen to this, this naive, maybe even idolatrous, Hopefulness in Joni Mitchell's song about Woodstock. I'm going, I'm going on down to Yasger's farm. I'm going to join a rock and roll band. I'm going to camp out on the land. I'm going to try and get my soul free. Then, if you're familiar with the song, we are stardust, we are golden. And she used this biblical imagery. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Now, we look back on Woodstock. There isn't anything about that that's Eden. <laughs> Certainly not as God would see it. Ultimately, deceived by Satan, all of these have been seeking to bring about what only God could do. To bring paradise back. But I think you get this the imperfect simply cannot create something that is perfect, right? Sinful man cannot design, produce, and manage a sinless environment. Only a perfect man, only a better and new Adam, only the one mediator between God and man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who made propitiation by his own body, offered up in death as a sacrifice. Only Christ, only Christ could do it. And he, he is making all things new. A new environment, a new Eden, because by his death and resurrection, he made his people new. That's connected. New environment because of new people. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For everyone who is in Christ by faith, that newness began with a new spirit. But then, 
that Christ returns. Then comes a new body fashioned for a new creation when Christ returns. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because that's my next heading. So let me continue with this. All things new is a place. That place is a restored creation. Then all things new is a people perfected. A people perfected. Now, in a book of the Bible uh, that I'm not eager to preach through anytime soon, that's Song of Songs. Uh, not, it's the Word of God, so maybe I'll have the courage to get to it or be prepared enough to handle it, but let's just leave that aside. Uh, but in the book, if you've read it, uh, it's beautiful poetry. Solomon described the beauty of his bride with, with similes like this. Doves, flocks of goats, shorn ewes, Scarlet thread, halves of a pomegranate, Tower of David, two fawns, twins of a gazelle. You'll have to figure out what that one is. You have to read it, of course, to see what he's referring to, and I won't get into that as a little PG-13. But anyway, be that as it may, when you read that, you, you see that Solomon is using this, this language to describe something in ways that, with these similes, and I don't recommend husbands that you use this kind of stuff to talk to your wife, but... but what he's doing, and you can, you can see it, he's, he's describing her beauty in the best way possible with each of those descriptors somehow symbolic of something that is praiseworthy. Now, as we try to understand what John has shown here in Revelation 21, he saw the bride of Christ, the church, metaphorically depicted not just as any city, but for the people of God, what to them historically was the most cherished city verse 2 and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband now again symbolic language a city becomes a bride for a husband well we'll see why he chooses this in a moment now i think he's alluding here to isaiah 52 and to 61 jerusalem zion there that's the eschatological end times fulfillment of God restoring what had been lost to the people of God through conquest and exile. So that's that illusion there. So this Jerusalem that, that John sees, this Jerusalem is not like the city that was overrun by the Babylonians in 568. It's not like the city that was utterly destroyed by Rome in AD 70. No, this city... It's perfect. It's beautiful to behold. Now, if you look down at verses 9 through 21, there's a more comprehensive description of this new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, which is the church. And you see verse 10, coming down out of heaven from God. Meaning this isn't a human endeavor that put this together. This is from God. This is God's doing. And remember what Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18. He said, I will build my church. We don't make the church. We don't decide to get together and say, we are the church. The church is something that Jesus does for us and makes of us coming down out of heaven. But we see that the city is beautiful. Verse 11, having the glory of God. And then he, then he describes radiant like a most rare jewel. The beautiful, beautiful city. And the city is uh, verses 12 through 14, I take it comprised of the whole people of God. 
And, and so you get this imagery here, 12 and 13. There are 12 gates with the names of the sons of Israel, so the 12 tribes. And that was representative of the old covenant people, the sons of Jacob. But then you've got the wall of the city with its 12 foundations with the names of the apostles, right? That's the new covenant representatives, right? So what this does, this, this, this uh, imagery represents the totality of all of the people of God from the beginning to the end. In verses 15 through 17, we see that the city is perfect in the sense that there is nothing deficient and is even measured out uh, with a gold measuring rod implying that this is the best standard. It's the best standard. And I don't doubt there's some allusion here to the, 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 the Ezekiel's vision of the, of the temple and all of its precision and furnishings. Um, but we're given these dimensions. It's a cube, four square. And, and you see that there's a, a, a lot of use of 12, so that, that number of, of divine government completion. And 12s by 10 by 10, you get 12,000 stadia. Then the walls are 144 cubits, 12 squared. It, it's, we're meant to take from it, it's perfect. Nothing's missing. It is, it is precise and it is exactly has been designed. Also, the city is precious, meaning it's to be cherished. And again, I keep saying city, but this is the bride of Christ, right? Jasper walls. The city is pure gold like glass. The foundations are adorned with 12 different jewels. We read those. 12 gates, each of, of, of which are made by, from a single pearl. It's hard to imagine how you get a pearl that big, but a single pearl. And the streets of gold so pure as that they're transparent. And, and what we're supposed to take from this, I, I, I understand, it's like, this is precious. Cherish this. And more importantly, the Lord Jesus says, I cherish this. The Lord Jesus says, this is perfect for me. The Lord Jesus says, this is the whole people of God. The Lord Jesus says, nothing is deficient. The Lord Jesus says, this is radiant. Now, I know that there have been gospel songs written um, about heaven with streets of gold, but I think those songs miss the point. The church, the redeemed people of God, that faithful remnant of Israel has been set apart by God. A whole people, they're beautiful, they're perfect, and they are precious to Christ. That's the church. That's how Jesus sees the church. Talked about membership seminar earlier and encouraging you to sign up if you haven't become one. But in every single seminar, I, I, I want every prospective member to have this exalted view of the local church as an expression of the universal church. Not that we exalt ourselves, but that we truly understand what Christ has done in order to, to in order to present us, the church, to himself on the day of his return. How much does the church matter to Jesus? Well, we can find that in other parts of Scripture. The Apostle Paul exhorting both husbands and wives. 
he, he points to Christ and his love for the church as one of the very foundational reasons as to why God gave marriage. And I would say this, and I say that every time I officiate a wedding ceremony to the bride and groom, I say, this, this isn't about you. <laughs> it's about Jesus. This is your opportunity in creation to put on display God's covenant love for his people. This is your opportunity to put on display in your unique marriage relationship the way in which Christ loves the church. Well, I'll take you to that passage, Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What a beautiful picture. And what Paul described in Ephesians 5, John saw in his vision of Jerusalem, Revelation 21. So know this. If you're in Christ, you are part of his bride. And if you are truly part of his bride, you need to see the church through Jesus' eyes. It matters immensely that we are a people set apart, holy, and without blemish. That's God's will for us. It matters immensely like a bride to the bridegroom. It matters immensely that our affections are for him, for Christ alone, because he loved us first. And it matters immensely that we collectively are prepared for the day, prepared for when we will be united with him forever. Therefore, it matters that we gather together. It matters that when we gather, there is worship and fellowship because the very defining characteristic of the church is the gathered people of God who gather before All Things New is a place, a restored creation with a people perfected, that's the church, who enjoy the possession of an eternal inheritance. That's the third heading. The possession is an eternal inheritance. Now, if you had received an inheritance, I suppose that's a nice thing. It's even biblical, Proverbs 13, 22. But if you think about it, that, that inheritance, which is stuff, money, maybe property or some valuable family heirlooms, that I, I think you'd agree that can't be compared in any stretch to the relationship, right? There's no substitute. Is, is a life insurance policy of great joy for her for a child when her father has died, right? And I hope the relationship was such that she'd rather have her dad than the money. For the people of God, yes, there is a place. And the people of God are a prof uh, perfected people in that beautiful place. But I want to offer this. That place would be absolutely meaningless 
apart from the fact of what John hears, the most valuable possession, the most cherished, valuable possession of the people of God is eternal fellowship with Him. Verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty. Now that thirst, that's a, a, a longing for something that is truly needed for life. A longing for something to be satisfied eternally. And it is given to the one who conquers, the one who is kept faithful through tribulation, through suffering, through death. But how will that be satisfied? Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This heritage, I will be his God he will be my son. That inheritance, that heritage is sonship. It was already described in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, you probably know that that kind of sounds like God's promise to the Israelites after he rescued them from Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That was a promise made. Now back then, back in Exodus, back when after the Israelites were rescued from, from Egypt, the tabernacle and then later the temple, that was symbolic of God's presence among his people. Yet that tabernacle was set up in such a way that only the high priest could enter into the most holy place, and that only once a year. So built into the tabernacle, built into the temple, was this kind of separation. It was a wall. But John sees something far, far better in his vision. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. God himself is dwelling with his people. No mediating structure, no practices used to prevent people from seeing God. Now understand, back in Exodus and, and through the Old Covenant, that was there for a good purpose. It was not for God's sake, but it was for man's. Remember, if, if you know the, the story again from Exodus, Moses himself, he, he had heard from God, he, God called him, let, you know, go to Pharaoh, you know, rescue your people. And Moses is so taken that he says, look, I, would you let me see you? Show me your glory. But the Lord told him, for his own good, man shall not see me and live. And like all of us, his own sin necessitated a separation between us and our God, as it says in Isaiah 59.2. But with sin eradicated, no temple, no structure, no mediating edifice, just unhindered, unfiltered access to God. This is what the Son of God secured for us, as it says in Hebrews 10. Now this is in a spiritual sense. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. That is 
through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That access to the very presence of God is the access of the Son of God himself. Inasmuch as the Son of God comes into the presence of God, if you are in Christ, you are coming into the very presence of God with him. And as a child of God, you are granted in Christ a share of his inheritance because he is the preeminent son. It says this in Romans, we are children of God and if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And what Christ has, he's going to inherit the nations. Yes, he will be king over all of those and we will reign with him to be sure. But the most important thing that he has is his eternal fellowship with the Father and inasmuch as you are in Christ, you have that too. So what is now only a spiritual reality that will be a physical reality when Christ returns. We spiritually enter into the presence of God through prayer. Physically, we will be in the very presence of Almighty God, unhindered, unfiltered, no temple. And verses 23 through 27 describe what it's like in the eternal presence of God. It's glorious. We're told there, no moon, no sun is needed in the city. Light, light comes from the very glory of God and the Lamb. And all the people, all the nations will live forever by that light. Understand it will be complete unity. There will be no dissension, no wars, no hardship, no conflict, no conquest, no competition. It will be complete unity. And those gates of that city, well, they'll never be closed because there'll be no more night. And further, there won't be any threat from invaders. Completely safe. And again from verse four, and in all of that, and I'm confident we will have the memory of what we were redeemed from, but he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. In the presence of God, pure, perfect existence with absolute, exponentially increasing joy forever. And there, there will be nothing detestable, nothing false. It will be the eternal abode. And this is exclusive. It's the eternal abode of all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is what the people of God can look forward to. This is what the Apostle Paul anticipated as he wrote the church in Ephesus, and this is the first chapter, he says there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Every spiritual blessing anticipates every physical blessing when Christ returns. And all of those blessings are centered on a restored relationship with God. Now, there are a lot of fictional depictions of the afterlife. Some of them are rather silly. Some have tried their best to depict it. 
But for the true child of God, the thing we long for, and I think this should be true for each of us if you're in Christ today, the thing we long for is not some kind of luxurious place with every delight before our eyes and every pleasure at our fingertips. What we long for is that we can't wait to be with God. What we long for is to enjoy him, to truly reflect in an unhindered way his glory back to him and to be satisfied in him forever. I hope that's your longing today. Maybe this morning if your heart has been stirred in a new way, maybe you've never considered these things before. Let me exhort you, encourage you, plead with you. Hope in Christ. And what that means is that you trust him. You trust him for who he is. You, you believe that he is the son of God. You believe that he came to this earth. Jesus, born of a virgin, lived flawlessly before God and men. That when he was falsely accused and offered up, sent up to be condemned, he died, crucified on that Roman cross. But that was for a plan and purpose that God had put in before the foundations of the world. That that death right then and there would be full payment for the sin of everyone who would look to him in faith. I trust that that's you this morning. Believing that he died taking your sin to the grave, trusting that he rose again on the third day, proving himself to be God, triumphing over sin and death, anticipating the day when he will return again. If that is your hope this morning, that puts you in the camp of the redeemed. Believe in Jesus. Well, let me just wrap this up. All things new, that's, that's a place. It's a restored creation. That's this world restored. With a people perfected, that's us when our sin is taken away if you're in Christ today. And we will ultimately enjoy the possession of an eternal inheritance, which is fellowship with God, being satisfied in Him forever. Now, we don't have that yet. But with each passing day, we're getting a little closer. The sands of time are sinking so what do we do? We wait. We look toward the eastern sky for the consummation of the kingdom of God in Emmanuel's land. In closing this morning, I want to leave you with the words of a poem, a poem by Anne R. Cousins. This has been um, put into hymn format. It's a little long, but I want you to, I want you to hear these words. So please listen carefully. This is, this is I think it's exquisitely written. She writes, the sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Speaking what it's been like living in a world where there's floods and hurricanes and typhoons. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Now, now she, she now describes Christ. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. 
It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth, mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. I have no rock beside him in Emmanuel's land. And now getting to this picture of the, the bride of Christ with, with her beauty. Here's what she writes. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, meaning her own, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. I hope and pray that that is your longing this morning. Let's pray. Fathers, your people, um, we endure tribulation and trials and difficulties in this life. We feel our bodies wasting away. Yet, yet we know. We know that day is coming when the Lord Jesus will come back. And in victory, he'll eradicate all sin, all evil, vanquishing all of the corruption, bringing us a new restored creation even in as much as he's restored us as his people and perfected us to enjoy that fellowship with you forever. Father, I pray as we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and all that he will give, us to, give to us on that day, keep us faithful in the meantime. Not only to submit to him as the kingdom's eternal king, but to also to proclaim him so that all those who know us know that that is our eternal hope. Father, strengthen us. Keep us faithful to that day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.